Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, and as I just shared with the co hosts, I'm super hyper caffeinated today, <laughs> so ready to go. Um, and today, uh, the co hosts are Tiffany Pearsall. That's me. And Liz Nolasco. Hello. Yay. Um, so, we've been trying to decide what to record about for the last several minutes. Last night, mm-hmm. Tiffany messaged our group and said, I need a nerd rant right now. And I said, okay, log in at noon and we'll figure out what to talk about. So the three yeah. of us are the ones who logged in at noon. So we've decided we're going to talk about um, a quote from a book called The Commodification of American Education. And it's edited by T. Jameson Brewer and William Gregory Harmon. And here's our quote. Commodification is the rendering of people or things into items of economic exchange reducing humans and humanity into objects and attaching human value to economic metrics. Okay. While I, while, while I type that quote into the chat box, so you guys can refer to it, talk about what that means. <laughs> How does that connect to, to early childhood or what are, what are we doing here? I mean, it's talking about career readiness for preschoolers. Uh, God, <laughs> my, um, my, my department head, got maybe I shouldn't have identified him that clearly but he got, um, I think his daughter is in second grade and they got a brochure sent home from school the other day about how they can start working to get her career ready Ouch. just the idea that we're all here to produce for the GDP I mean sorry I don't want to go fully oh. and cap right we're here that, for but, a um, rant yeah Tiffany's <laughs> gonna go hard anti-capitalist so you might as well <laughs> <laughs> um okay so seriously i'm typing the quote in the chat box it's a long... <laughs> so it's like the, our only value is monetary value yeah is that the only thing we're worth now yeah um it's, yeah. so it's yeah. it, it's sort of i mean it's absolutely what um oh my gosh what's his name oh it's right here peter moss talks about when he's talking about um finding alternative narratives to talk about early childhood education and and the down the shortcomings of trying to talk about quality and define quality because it always comes down to an economic argument right all all of our advocacy comes down to well you get you know a billion dollars back for every three dollars you put into child care now or it, it, that you invest now and it's all about it's it, the conversation is never here are very young children who through no 
agency over themselves are thrown into these group situations and are being cared for in these um in child care centers and, and family child care homes or whatever. Um, and, and we don't think that, well, they're just children who deserve the best isn't a compelling enough argument. So we have to say, um, yeah, we get some economic value out of this. If, if we do things for these children now, it's not like, oh, they're humans who deserve good quality of life now. And I think of it too, is the devaluing of art, right? Art and music. I mean, I think having worked in a pretty wide variety of settings at this point in my career, there is such a difference between the families that are seeking out art and music and drama versus the families who have been, who believe that line about, or I'm not that other families don't believe the line, but this idea of early childhood as career readiness and school readiness and preparation, you know, preparation for life instead of a part of life mm, yeah you know there, there's such a difference between the people who are seeking the economic stability not all this is a very broad generalization but people who want that economic stability for themselves for their children and people who can just count on economic stability and have the luxury of art and music yeah they already have that stability so they don't need mm -hmm. to advocate for it for their own children exactly and they're not as vulnerable to this marketing of the earlier is better and the sooner your child is reading, the sooner they'll be able, you know, to have this leg up. And I mean, even the name Head Start at this point feels so grossly competitive, which yeah, I'm sure is not sure. what it was intended to be, but. Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't what it was intended to be. <laughs> um, but you're right. It has that. I don't know. Just. the the whole argument that the only thing that matters is our economic value um just really makes me sort of sick and i i talk a lot when i'm when i'm teaching or on podcasts or when i used to do trainings and stuff i talk a lot about the the ways that our child uh, child care systems settings places whatever dehumanize children and and adults for some you know to also, that's a different conversation or or a different a, a point for later. But um, and it always comes across as so sounding so harsh. And I oh, every time I use the word, even though I firmly believe that even a daily schedule, what's broken down into twenty minute increments or whatever, has a dehumanizing effect. Um, our our diaper changing uh, practices many times have a dehumanizing effect. Um, this whole economic conversation has the same kind of potential impact. Um, and people are always like, oh, how dare you say that? We're good people. Um, you know, and it's it's not that every every adult working with young children is dehumanizing on purpose. Like we don't wake up and say, hmm, how, how can I uh, uh, take children's humanity from them today? There's a little box on my lesson plan for dehumanizing activities. <laughs> like it's not that, that that's the case, but just the whole sort of capitalist setup uh, factory model contributes to that. And it's just ingrained in our teacherisms at this point too. The same mm -hmm. way that if Robert Moore died in a car as a she, like you just do it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so much of it 
that is just how you interact with a large group of anything that suddenly they become dehumanized through needing to push the widgets from A to B. Like mm-hmm. eventually if you're stuck in that system, which we all have been since birth. Yeah. Like that's just how our brains are wired at this point. I also think that there's a part of it so spending lots of time in local government lately Uh there's a there's a part of it that you have to justify every single decision in such an intensely large scale so quickly that if you can't put money to why no one will agree with you and move the needle Mm -hmm. and you only have four years to make that argument so you have to do the biggest bang for your buck as fast as you can before somebody else gets voted in and so that like the inability to like truly have a long-range vision for what we want our children to have in America is totally because of our stupid capitalist society (laughs) (laughs) okay so um... the way that our government works like puts this childhood amnesia to play every four years in the voting cycle Uh Mm -hmm. so um okay then that's true (laughs) I mean I know that that's true and it's kind of like um so I just did this this presentation at the IPA USA thing in Texas and um about schema play of course because that's all I talk about anymore (laughs) but um you know, we talked about how there are some people who think we need to stop defending play. We need to just say, you know, we just need to to do it or whatever. But the reality is there are people that we have to be able to convince. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. so we do have to defend play um, and we do have to advocate and you have to fine tune your advocacy message to the specific audience you're talking about. And I think that's kind of the same thing you're describing, Tiffany, where um, there is this political game that we have to play. So if it's a four-year cycle and so far it has seemed pretty hopeless, there's not much getting accomplished over the several four-year cycles that I've been part of as an adult. Um, why, why should we keep caring about it? Like what's, what's the argument to keep? Mostly because it keeps getting worse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. One of the best books in my collection is a children's book called when will I read? And at the end of this little book meant for very young children it's revealed that this is a first grade classroom where the children are not yet reading and not yet expected to read oh and i bust that out every kindergarten (laughs) Um, (laughs) well i have to write that down yeah um... putting it in my cart now yep (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh i don't know if it's still available it was from a garage sale god knows how long oh i'll find it used don't you worry (laughs) (laughs) um but it's just so pervasive i mean from the time that i was you know, starting school 20 years ago. It's just this, no, 30 years, 30 so years ago. I don't know what time you? is. Okay. Sorry, I'm 33, <laughs> 30 years ago. Uh, <laughs> there's just been such an increase in the standardized testing and, and that's been federal down, right? This yeah. race to the top and no, no child left behind. And it's just keeps getting worse on these kids where under all of this intense pressure to not just keep up but surpass their peers in all areas and that's where that language of competition and co-modification 
circles back around to that like every moment of our days are competition yeah and and, and not just so who, yucky who's gonna, who's gonna get the best test score or who's gonna it's who's gonna wa- wash their hands the fastest who's gonna be the first one in line yes. like that is so ingrained in our culture that it's unless you're actively fighting against it that's just the right you know that's right. just the hands don't make sense in podcast form that's just what's happening there'll be a video the <laughs> okay. when it's the video comes out they'll see your hands <laughs> all sides. yeah the whole thing about competition is i think important to the to the discussion of commodifying um because that's selling right that's having a product to sell um mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you know, you want to be the one who's selling the most product. Like that's just, and the same thing with standardized testing, there have to be people who don't do well on the test for the test to be seen as valuable. Like if everyone did well on the, whatever metric we use to measure it wouldn't be children's lives, um, there, there wouldn't be like, no one would buy that test anymore. Cause clearly it's not. Um, or, or we'd say, well, this program is clearly not rigorous enough for, you know, all those words that we use when we're talking about these kinds of competitions. Right. I was thinking about the American obsession interest with um, big trucks and guns and powerful things the other day and how it kind of links to this finding power where you can and finding agency where you can. Okay. Mm-hmm. And just this idea of it's all a competition. So I'm going to win at the way that I'm good at this. Oh, okay. Just this idea of rather than valuing each person as a person, commodifying them, right? Like the quote says into what they can do for you Mm -hmm. and what they can demonstrate and prove. just kind of, in my mind, at least is as a natural link to this idea of needing more power and more force and more visible excess and i don't know how much that also ties into the rampant american consumerism as a whole i feel like it probably does yeah just this idea of being able to ostentatiously demonstrate how well you have done Mm -hmm. yeah because we're just always yeah there's just always that element of competition the whole um (laughs) go ahead tiff can we coin a new phrase today? please please um i i think we should call it the toddler economy the what it's just toddler economy okay it's just mine 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 more 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 <laughs> you don't get the socialization and the time to work through that and you're that your whole life like how yeah. do you learn and like develop your empathy and how do you care about groups of people that aren't you like if you're not given those opportunities like our whole economy is that mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. not to poop on toddlers i don't want to i was gonna say can we put an asterisk on that yeah <laughs> but like toddlers aren't meant to be silos by themselves like you need that experience you need that social network you need those grown-ups around you like if you don't have that, this is where we end up mm-hmm. because all you want to do is teach them flashcards and how to read. Like they also need to know 
how to love babies sure and how to like care for their family yeah <laughs> and care and- for people that aren't in their family yeah even the <sighs> the sort of newish push for sel you know social emotional learning is commodified like it's not really about social and emotional development and understanding where children are and what they need it's compliance (laughs) it's behavior management it's how to dehumanize you back into the group when your humanity makes you inconvenient to me (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh absolutely it's it's never emotional or social development for its own means it's Uh within the classroom setting it's you need to teach your child how to identify their emotions they can tell me when they're mad well, if they're throwing a chair, they're probably mad. Yeah, they're telling <laughs> you that they're mad. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, so so this podcast is kind of weird because neither of you are interrupters or talker overs like many of my <laughs> other guests. So I'm pausing longer than usual and I get really uncomfortable and then one of you will start to talk. <laughs> so- I'm this also like out of podcast shape. I have not been on podcast in a while. So yeah. it's nice to yeah. be back. Yay. Well, Yay. Um, okay. So I'm going to look at the quote again and just see what else this brought to mind for me. So let's t- can we talk about this in the adult context of early childhood education? The idea that rendering of rendering people or things into items of economic exchange, reducing humans and humanity into objects attaching human value to economic metrics pedagogy of care versus the pedagogy of academics (laughs) (laughs) okay talk more about that liz oh okay so (laughs) i mean i think it's just that there's been this semi-focus on the idea of soft skills right but it's just like tiffany was saying where we don't value people learning how to get along or learning to care for each other or I'm even going to argue not learning to care for each other, but just not suppressing the natural human urge to care for each other. Yeah. Um, Because I I think that's what it is. I think it's being suppressed rather than not taught. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look into the toddler, I'm going to brag on my kid for a second. I'm sorry, I have to. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) He's 20 months old. And I swear every other day when I peek into the toddler room, he's got somebody's water bottle that he's feeding them. (laughs) (laughs) These are all children who are capable of holding their own water bottles, but he needs to give them the water. Yeah. Uh, um, Allison Kotnick would love that. It's just a natural <laughs> urge, you yeah. know. It's but we suppress it. We say no, they're germs, you know. And right, right, full right. disclosure: I don't love that he's touching other people's water bottles. But <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, we 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 keep children from doing these things for each other because you know, worry about yourself or uh, yeah, it's inconvenient or you're in the way or you know, it's not fine, time for fine. water bottles yet. <laughs> Right. (laughs) The one that gets me the most is when a kid gets hurt and you're like, no, give him space, leave him alone. It's like, no, go get him water. Go get a water bottle. Go get a paper towel. Like, go say that you love him. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. Um, Is this also where the side hustle culture comes in? Yes. Yeah, go ahead and talk about side hustle culture. That like because I'm so guilty of it. it makes me, <laughs> as we're on a side hustle podcast, 
but you know it's like making a million things for teachers pay teachers because you're like so good at STEM education (laughs) buy my worksheet packet on mushrooms like Uh (laughs) like that that side hustle isn't can you tell what I look for at teachers pay teachers is kind of a niche yeah Yeah. (laughs) but I just need nice watercolor mushroom pictures for my classroom um (laughs) But like that, oh, I was worried you were talking about mushroom identification. Ah, <laughs> uh, that there are much more trustworthy that. resources than teachers. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but that whole side hustle culture is like entirely based on commodifying learning and children, mm-hmm. right? The part of it is that guess what we don't make enough as educators right. to have a choice but to have a side hustle at all times so like i get that and then part of that is i'm excited and feel good about and i'm proud of what i do so i want to share it and make money right. off of it whatever at the or end of the day we are doing the exact same thing for our own profit yeah yeah and that's hard well i guess that's the end of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> it has to be though i mean i think there are so many ways to provoke thought and conversation that aren't commodification right right um but I, I mean, yeah you're right it's certainly easier to put together a packet of worksheets that have worked for your class and of course they'll work for everybody else you know yeah right mm-hmm. i i think i i have i think i've really noticed a boom in this area and i this is probably not unique or original thinking so <laughs> i'm not like oh as a side hustle scholar this is what i've <laughs> but, but anyway like, heather is your side hustle super lucrative no <laughs> i feel like that's a uh, it's not a side hustle yeah yeah i know i need feel the need to to clarify that the podcast makes zero dollars <laughs> and i in fact pay some dollars to keep it going um so but anyway i like i noticed early childhood people who did like blogs or just Facebook pages that I really liked and appreciated and learned from over COVID that really became sort of commodified and turned into products you can buy from me a lot of times, Mm -hmm. or um, suddenly everyone's taking like influencer classes, (laughs) social media, media influencer classes, which is cool. I mean, like I, if I had more energy and motivation, that would be something that I probably would really enjoy. But anyway, I just, I just feel like I watched it maybe out of necessity, maybe just out of having a lot of time to, to think about and develop new, new things, more of a commodification of ideas um, and sort of networking and sharing through social media um, over the last couple of years than I had seen before. But I think that's, that's where we need to figure out the line, I guess, between yeah. commodifying and sharing, because I think they are two distinct concepts. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't think it devalues someone's work to get paid for it, but I do think that obviously money can influence the way someone operates and that can in turn impact their work. Well, and, and so maybe that's what I didn't, wasn't clear enough about. When I was talking like the message has changed as they, okay, yeah. the message has gotten sort of more neutral um mm-hmm. or uh you know just less bold maybe because it's been mm-hmm. um turned into a product now rather than a sharing of ideas does that make sense right that makes sense yeah i think there's also a a, a ledge that hits where you're starting you're sharing 
to this audience for authentic reasons. And not to say that it doesn't stay authentic, right? Mm -hmm. But you reach this point where your audience shifts and suddenly the people that are listening to you are a very different group of people, mm. right? Yeah. Like it used to be, I'm sharing this with educators that want to learn how to do this better and don't want to commodify. And now it's like, if everyone is listening to me and I say the same things, it's going to be taken in a weird way, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that there, I think there's a, there's a level that hits where, um, you have to change your message mm -hmm. because you're not talking to the same people. That's true. Do you think it's kind of like a sine wave though, where it gets more intense and less intense as you get a broader audience, then you intensify again? Yeah. Once you've got like your safe space, well, kind of. Right? Yeah. 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 That could be. Um, we just talked about this with um, business growth and like, school growth right when you're small and you only have a few teachers like you can actually you get to a point where you're making money you're making pay when I say making money I'm a nonprofit. yeah so when I say making money they were making payroll every month and no one's vomiting at how scary that is <laughs> <laughs> right, right that's what we all do buy the new playground toys it's <laughs> lovely and then you think oh if we open another classroom like it'll stay at this sustainable way but really there's that ledge that cliff in between where like you're going to hit a point where you have too many teachers and not enough kids but you need yeah. a certain number of teachers to reach that same sustainability that you had when you were two teachers in the classroom kicking butt and taking names right like <laughs> I think that that happens with our I don't know how we got stuck on side hustle but like I think that happens <laughs> with side hustle and people in the field that are speaking out and you know make trying to advocate for change I think that that same cycle happens there too yeah so I'm gonna um throw a quote from the next page in here Ooh. now it's not super different but it, what the next um nerd podcast is you just reading the book to us while we yeah like yeah <laughs> probably that's not legal um but 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 I, look I I'm know. sitting crisscross apple top <laughs> so I know you're learning eyes on me um okay so let's see uh so to objectify is to render a subject into the value not in and of itself but into value for the use of others for instance a tree is a living being and each one is a unique entity a subject of its own when someone looks at it and sees the lumber they will get from it the tree has been rendered into an object does that add any new direction to the conversation do you think or is that just saying the same thing differently when we're talking about working with young children I think we all inherently understand that quote because we identify as women oh what's that mean Tiffany we're all like yeah of course we know yeah we've been objectified a thousand million times right yeah it. yeah <laughs> but yes like I was objectified and I was just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the population of people with um, the power to make change mm -hmm. in our country, mm -hmm. in our local government. Yeah. We might not understand that quote. Yeah. So, but, but bring it down to like um, a, an individual program or an individual classroom because I think 
I mean, those are usually women um, and still really struggle to see, um, you know, play is a good example. I, I don't think the children are getting anything out of it. So I can't just let them play. Like there's no value unless I can get something out of it, something for my use out of what I'm letting children do or not do, I think falls into this commodification and, and objectification conversation. Ooh, this ties in really nicely to a conversation I was listening to the other day. She was talking about oh, how Oh good, because I didn't know writing... where I was gonna go. <laughs> she <laughs> she was talking about how, you know, she's my father's issue. She's amazing. Talking about how she loves the job, she loves being with the children and she hates writing newsletters and writing all the information for parents about what the kids are doing. And I said, Well, you're you're so good at it. you've got such a strong theoretical base. Like uh-huh. I'm so surprised to hear that. And she said, Yeah, but my job is to be with the children. Like I, I value the parents, they're wonderful, but <laughs> my job is with the children i don't care about producing (laughs) oh okay um that wasn't quite what she said so i i don't want to malign her at all but i mean but she's so disinterested in making those theory practice connections for the parents to see Uh because they're they're both because they're self-evident and because she's worried that it devalues her work of being with the children She's worried that by making those connections, by saying they're learning X, Y, Z, she's, she's devaluing herself and her role and the children as people. Yeah. So, Ooh, so I, there's a way to do documentation without devaluing. Okay. I'm raising my hand. Yeah, go. Hand raiser. Um, I, I would argue that your teacher has not found the medium in which she translates her experience. She doesn't translate her experience to written word. And once she finds mm-hmm. the medium, it will not devalue. It will like skyrocket how she feels about her time in the classroom because she will simply be translating her experience in a way that is now visible to other people. Ooh, thank you. And that's not always <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but that's the thing. So she and I can talk for hours. Like I usually have to cut her off because she's so excited about what's going on. She just, but you're right. It's just the medium that must be not. Like it must be so much more interactive, I guess, than just preaching. Maybe that's that's yeah. the trick. Yeah, I was the like, "What is this reminding me of?" of? But it's reminding mm-hmm. me of an of an episode I just recorded with Carol well, about learning stories. <laughs> <laughs> that, that will come out a couple of weeks before this one if I send them to Jeff in the right order. Um, mm-hmm. So, well, so I mean but, that uh, that this ties in perfectly to our commodification argument, though. Yeah. Writing and blogs and books, like that is how we see ourselves as educators represented in the field being successful. Uh-huh. And like, whatever, if the way that you translate is a song or talking to a friend or talking to your t- your parents about it, I can't sell that uh-huh. <laughs> in the same way that I can easily sell a blog or a book. Like that, uh-huh. I think that that's part of it and why we feel we have to write everything down is like if I don't write it down then there's no documentation or receipt that I am doing something that is worth something else yeah uh, the idea right. of receipts for what we're doing is interesting I know that's yeah, you know Lisa talks too. about that you know with the artwork or whatever being a receipt for what the children did at school uh, at the program that day but for adults receipts for adults what did you start to say Tiffany well, I think that that's 
that's another fine line between commodification. Are we, is this a receipt of our transaction? You know, I taught your children, I give you this, or mm -hmm. is it a reflection of our practice today? Is it sharing our experience? Mm -hmm. Is it, um, no, I, I lost my train of thought. Well, or, or is it no, part that. of being in, in a community <laughs> that cares for that child, like, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, Josie's a, a preschooler or whatever. So yeah, my job is to be with Josie um, and to understand the theory and be able to use that in my work with Josie. But then when I somehow find a way that works for me to share that with the family, then it's part of creating that community. That's all working together for Josie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But as someone who loves to write, that's hard for me because I'm like, yeah, just do a newsletter. <laughs> like right. Get over it and do a newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> I, hate I know. I'm sorry, Tiffany. <laughs> About your but, so that that's what I was writing. gonna say that it's the difference between a receipt and validation, right? Parents in your care need validation that you love their child as much as, or not as much as they do. You'll never right. love it, but that you also love your, their child and care for their child. Mm -hmm. And we get to set the tone as educators. How will I share that with you? How will I validate you? How will you feel like you're a part of your child's life? Even if they're here for 10 hours a day Yeah. versus here's a receipt. See you later. Bye. Sure. So, so okay. There's let's... another elephant in the room though. Oh, what? <sighs> Um, guess what? This is a business. We have to make money. <laughs> yeah, the parents okay. pay us money to do the business job. <laughs> like that's the side that's that's hard where we can't compete with public schools the same way because there is this end of the day, I pay you money mm. every month. Show me what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's that inherent commodification because of the how the industry is built right now in our country. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> I know. I was waiting for Liz because I was sure she'd have something. So, Well, I'm just thinking about backfilling in the public schools. because that, That's been my kind of thing turning around in my head lately. How do we, rather than bringing early childhood into the public schools, how do we make the public schools more like early childhood, right? And not with the commodification piece, but yeah. being ready to receive the children who are in a perfect world, ready to receive whichever children come yeah. to us. And yeah. Um, and accommodating working parents, right? The, you know, everyone talks about how hard it is to be a working parent when your child is an infant. What about when they're five and they're only at school for five hours a day and there's no aftercare available? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we make yeah, it with that, that COVID narrative of we're teachers, not babysitters? And yeah. um, that narrative of teachers as part of the broader community, because we've really lost a lot of the close family, you know, quote unquote, village ties just yeah. by virtue of capitalism right moving where the jobs are moving where your industry is and just bringing that family support in in a way that used to be just baked into your neighborhood right so you know johnny would go to school he'd go home spend a couple hours with grandma and then mom and dad would get home from work right but we don't have that anymore parents have to pay for the before and after mm -hmm. care and preschool mm -hmm. and just being ready for who's received and how it's just such a failing of our country and our communities that these are commodities and businesses to be paid for rather than expectations the way, you know, the public schools are. Yeah. 
Yeah. That, so I know I've 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 talked about this on other episodes and I've had the author on the show once, but there so there's a book by Elliot Haspel called yeah. Crawling Behind America's Child Care Crisis and How to Fix It. And ultimately, and I think maybe he's changed his position a little bit um, on a couple of things uh, just by following him on Twitter um, since then it came out a few years ago. But anyway, his his basic um, assertion is that child care should be seen as a public good like school is but not run like school is and that school could learn some things so i'm just going to throw that out there in case anyone wants to go read that book um and then contact their their decision makers <laughs> and in, in increase their skill at talking about um why it well, you know because the argument is always well i don't need child care so why should i care about child care or you know the the old the old white guys making the decisions haven't ever had to really rely on child care to get to work or something. So, um, so anyway, I think that's a good resource that, that we can um, utilize in this sort of argument or defense of what we're doing. I do wonder too, if we offered families more, I mean, more paid family leave, more guaranteed vacation time, the way other countries do, mm-hmm. how much that would change, right? If families who got to spend, had the luxury of spending more time with their children without sacrificing yeah. their salaries, yeah. How much that would change our role as needing to demonstrate what we're doing rather than giving the parents that luxury of just more time with their children. And- yeah. Or, um, oh gosh, what's it called? It's not universal income, is it? Where everybody just universal basic income, universal yeah. basic income, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, will never happen probably, but that would also even, you know, every parent benefits from that. Um, and every employer would benefit. Yeah, from that and every employee I, would I see it as, it's not it's definitely more than just a child care problem we were setting our closure days for the following year and we're gonna have to close the whole school and move the whole school at a certain point so we're talking about how many days do we need to do that and one of our board members said our closure days are more days than I have paid time off this year mm, yeah mm-hmm. I'm not the only one how does the family make rent if you're closed more than their mm-hmm. PTO? And yeah. so it is more than just a teaching problem. It's a whole country paid leave problem. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. if people had four weeks of paid leave every yeah. year, guess what? Our teachers would get four leave, weeks yeah. of paid leave. I don't get I don't get vacation time. I get the breaks between semesters, but I don't get to choose when my vacation time is. So um, yeah, that would be hard for me too, as you know, a person with a pretty good job and pretty good income. I still would struggle if I had children in childcare right now. Yeah. Well, that was a downer. <laughs> Come on, so vacation now- sucks. Yes, there we go. <laughs> Commodification equals suck. That's yeah. that's our new yes. our new thing. Something <laughs> equals suck. We're not sprockets. We're human. <laughs> Except for Toad in the Wet Sprocket. They are humans. They're the exception. Excellent point. I'm sure that will be relatable (laughs) to a huge chunk of the audience. (laughs) Maybe, maybe Toad listens. (laughs) Um, Okay. What else? Anything else? Or you feel like we've, we've done this one. Did you get enough ranting? Did you get enough nerding, Tiffany? This was all about you and your needs. We've dipped a toe. I'm here all day, folks. (laughs) 
All right. Well, I'm going to wrap this episode up and then we can all stay on if we need to. Um, but thank you both um, for being on today and also just for your amazing, flexible, brilliant brains who can show up not knowing what we're talking about and wait for me to pull something off my bookshelf and then just go and have a really smart conversation. Um, you're both awesome. Uh, okay. So this was another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. Thanks for being here and come back again next week. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.